You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Berkshire Hathaway, people are talking about this thing getting close to a $1 trillion valuation fine. All I care about is what are they going to do with their cash? Uh, Matthew Palazzola, uh, he joins us here. Uh, he's from Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers all the insurance companies, including Berkshire. So, Matthew, how much cash do they really have on their balance sheet? And we've been asking the same question for years. What do they do with it? Anything new coming out of Omaha? No. So about $168 billion of cash. Um, we've been talking about this for a long time. They haven't had a ton to do with the cash. Buffett had said uh, there's almost no targets outside of the U.S. that he would be interested in. And the ones inside the U.S., the prices are getting driven up on competition. So it was a it was a real, I thought, a, a kind of negative tone in the letter, not only on that, but on some of their operations as well. So uh, walk us through that. Like what were raised concerns for you? Yeah, so the beginning of last year at the annual meeting, Buffett had said, we think the energy business and the railroad business uh, they're going to be earnings going to be lower in 2023 versus 22. What happened was they were lower, but there was actually a couple of externalities as well that made them even worse. And their their go forward concerns. The first one was uh, labor costs in the railroad that they were having a, a labor shortage, and they were paying their people more. So the margins in that Burlington Northern Santa Fe seem to be like they're going to underperform peers uh, on a go forward basis. The second was in energy. Uh, in the, the West Coast, there's a lot of litigation on wildfires. There's a lot of uh, regulation on their profits. And the outlook there didn't look good either. So, but to that point, what I find interesting is that for the railroad, for example, that's why there's the cash pile, right? Because yeah, I mean, you, can, you can make the argument that I have $167 billion in cash because when things don't go well, I don't have to go to a bank. I don't have to get a loan. I can manage that. So their their cash pile is far in excess of, of what they would need, right? So they well, sure. they, they want to keep a buffer of like twenty billion, and they have one hundred sixty seven, right? So um, the they're not keeping it to support the businesses; they're keeping it because there's just nothing good to do with it. Historically, what has Warren said about dividends or lack thereof? So he, he likes getting them, and he will never, and he'll never pay them, right? So I think in in a post Buffett Berkshire, maybe that's something that happens with Greg Abel. I'm not 100 percent sure, 
Um, but it's never going to happen when, when he's in charge. And that's just a philosophical thing with him? Yeah, he thinks we can uh, do better with the cash than giving it back to you <laughs> and letting you take the alternative. Can I ask a really dumb question? Like, wh where is that cash? Like, is it in a money market fund? Like, is it in bonds? It, it's in money markets, bonds, short-term securities. And what, what happened last year was the short-term rates went up so much yep. that they were earning a ton of money on it. And I think that actually <laughs> took, they were they went from I mean, something yeah. earning like 50 million to like 5 billion or something, just, just on the cash. Um, and I actually think that took a lot of pressure off even them investing in equities. So how do people, I mean, you're an insurance analyst, so you're an odd duck to begin with, right? Nobody, it's just <laughs> Quacking, cra right? crazy accounting, <laughs> you don't know what's going on. How do, you, how do you and other analysts really analyze this conglomerate or do you just say, hey, it's a GDP growth company and that's it, a slap a GDP multiple on it? I mean, I wouldn't say that. It, it's tough. Um, we try to look at you know some of the parts. You can value the company uh, looking at the float and the insurance business. There's, there's a couple of different methods to do it, um, you know, even just on a simple PE, right, and what they're earning. Um, it seems like generally the values of the businesses uh, kind of fall in line with with peers like I don't think there's a conglomerate discount okay. maybe anymore um, I would uh, consistently argue that it's not a GDP company that it's got best-in-class businesses mm -hmm. uh, pricing power businesses so uh, you're not gonna just see them growing you know two to three percent a year um, but uh, you know a ton of the the emphasis goes on their investments and you know what they can buy what do you think they should buy you know Something I was thinking of over the weekend. I, I was thinking they were going to buy Occidental, right? And they mm -hmm. threw cold water on that last year. He said it again in the uh, letter this year that he wasn't going to buy it. Um, but something I thought kind of fits into his niche would be maybe entertainment, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about the things, there's a lot that, for sale. <laughs> you know, maybe you're you're looking at yeah. right now. Uh -huh. I, I think that because look, what what does he look at? He looks at stuff that there's going to be consistent demand for, right? Maybe it's a little um, old school. Like he still thinks he says coal's not going anywhere anytime mm -hmm. soon. You know, it, it's not. Um, he bought these Japanese trading houses, right? They, the investment there is around 19 billion dollars in value, and if you look at them, they're not AI, they're not flashy, they're not tech, but they are steeply involved in these things that are just not going away. And I think that. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't cover entertainment, but I think, you know, there you go, Paul. Maybe you have an idea. <laughs> no, call I got a few of them for but The whole town's for sale. You know, it, there's Seriously. always going to be a market for entertainment. We yeah. always need to be entertained. So I don't know. Maybe there's something in there. Well, I mean, to your Oxy point, I mean, it's not that he was he was, he was offered a really good deal. Mm -hmm. Like he got a really good deal on some shares when Oxy was looking to buy Anadarko and they needed cash. They needed cash quickly because Chevron was also making a bid. So like... Mm -hmm. Will things get dramatic enough or distressed enough for there to be a really good deal? Might not be buy the whole company, but get that good deal. What do you think? You know, he always says he buys. He would love to own all of the companies he owns. Like he would love to own Apple, right? But he right. can't own the whole well, company. Um, I mean, he does say we're not interested in necessarily running Occidental, right? So I could see them buying up more of it. I mean, they have the warrants that will increase their ownership, given the strike price. Uh, but I don't. Again, like they're not. They don't want to run it. But I think they would own as much of it as they could. Step back here, PNC property and casualty. What do we, what's what's the call here? Do we like it? Do we not like them? So, for, for Berkshire's businesses specifically, they um, leaned into the Florida reinsurance market heavily mm -hmm. last year. Nice. Okay, and that call. that worked okay. out well. And you know, 
I've been guilty of saying this, and you see it sometimes in the press that they quote bet on the market, right? They didn't bet on it. They didn't like place their chips on black <laughs> and hope that it worked out, right? It was a it was a risk adjusted play. They said if we have an average hurricane season in Florida, we'll still make a nice return. What happened is we had a far below average, so they made a lot of money. Um, the other business for them that's kind of turning around is Geico. So if anyone here drives a car or has a car, you've probably seen auto insurance costs going up dramatically. You've probably also seen a lot less advertising. So they spent, I did some back of the envelope calculations, about $1.5 billion less on advertising this why? year, just in Geico. Wow. Um, than they would on a run rate basis. And why was that? They did that to protect the profitability of the business. Oh. So the the combined ratio of the business is kind of the inverse of their profit margin, right? Uh, they hope to make about a 4% profit margin underwriting insurance. They were probably gonna make zero if they didn't cut their ad spend dramatically. So they cut the ad spend, they've cut policies too, specifically in on the West Coast uh, to kind of pare that down. So that business was was actually a nice performer this year, but because they spent a lot less money on on advertising. Really interesting. That's Thank less you. money on my companies. Yeah. yeah stuff, stuff. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, Matt Palazzoa, we appreciate it. Thank you very much uh, joining us uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's the PNC Insurance Senior Analyst there and also uh, covers all things of Berkshire Hathaway. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Stocks are definitely still going up. Everyone's really confused about it and scratching their head, yet no one's actually selling necessarily. Like, you cannot get a sell-off in this rally. Uh, Kathy Entwistle is Managing Director at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, and she joins us now. Kathy, why won't markets go down? (laughs) That's a great question, Alex. You're always throwing those tricky ones at me. Um, I would say basically that everyone is still enthusiastic about the opportunity of interest rates coming down eventually. So there was a little bit of a pullback a couple of weeks ago when we all realized that the Fed was not going to start cutting rates as soon as they had originally thought. But now we know they're going to cut eventually. So we want to get our money in and have a long-term view and and get some of the growth that's been going on. A little bit of it's FOMO, a little bit of it is long-term thinking. So, Kathy, we're pretty much through the earnings season here. Um, I'm not sure I've seen earnings rise as much as the market has. So what did you take away from this earnings cycle here? Yeah, we were we were expecting earnings to get hit somewhat because over the last year or so, companies have been still very positive with their expectations. And at some point, they would, we're going to have to pull in because there are sales that are going down. The cost of goods is getting more expensive, and it's harder and harder to get that earnings number that they want in order to impress their shareholders. At the end of the day, there's only two ways to get the earnings to look good, and that's either to increase your sales and your revenue or to decrease your expenses. And a lot of companies are starting to decrease expenses. We're seeing that with the layoffs. And this is what we're thinking about of why companies are trying to reach those numbers by like making those cuts and laying people off. And it's not necessarily the most healthy way to meet numbers. So Kathy, what do you do then? Um, uh, Goldman Sachs had a note out that talked about how hedge funds are selling tech uh, last week and they're buying consumer staples, for example. What do you do in this environment? 
Yeah, one of the things that I'm, I'm doing with clients actually is a very simple basic concept of asset allocation, right? Which where you're starting with how much is the percentage you have in equities versus uh, fixed income versus alternative investing. And I'm peeling back a little bit for those clients that have stayed in the markets and have you know, done quite well, you can peel back a little bit from those names that have had a big run up and start going more into that whole fixed income arena because you are getting paid now for fixed income, which we haven't gotten paid in years for fixed income. So there's opportunities there. If the Fed does go go ahead and, and reduce rates at some point in the future, there's a chance for a little bit of a pop up too. So I think just looking at allocation is the first step. And the second step is looking at different areas of the market that we think will do well. We've liked consumer staples. We've liked, you know, everyone has to buy toothpaste, right? Everybody's got to <laughs> buy the basic products. So you can you can still go there. You can go healthcare. Healthcare should do well. We've seen some good numbers over this last um, earnings season too with healthcare, and we think we'll do you know continue to do well there. And I I think the financials still have a nice opportunity to um, recover in this market as well. So those are some of the areas that we're looking at. Kathy, on the fixed income side, how much credit risk are you suggesting your clients take? Do you stick with the treasuries where you can still get very nice yields, or do you or do you go out into the credit space and um, maybe take a little bit more risk for a little bit more return? Well, that's a great question, and it's something I've been having a conversation with my clients about. I don't think if we're going to have um, you know, the Fed raise rates sometime this year, these higher short-term rates are going to eventually go away. And then it's going to be too late to lock into the longer, higher rates. So I've been slowly legging clients out of these short-term rates, the treasury bills and things like that, and going a little bit longer. If it's a taxable account and they're, they're in a higher tax bracket, we're looking at municipal bonds. I really like municipal bonds for those clients. So because, does Paul. So does Paul. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> exactly. and Paul, great. So thanks, Alex. So the second piece of that is where, where are taxes going? They are definitely not going down. I don't know if they'll go up. Maybe they'll stay the same, but they are definitely not going down. The chances with a deficit and, and, and different things that are going on, we may see taxes at some point go up. There, there, it wasn't that many years ago or decades ago that we were in a much higher tax bracket um, in this country for the highest earners. And if that happens, municipals will be extremely valuable in your portfolio as well. This is also sort of a basic but yet silly question. So when you're taking a look at your asset allocation and your barbells and all of that, what do you pay attention to? Like, is it when the earnings cross the tape? Is it going to be the PCE uh, on Thursday? Is it going to be the Fed? Like, we all know where this is going, right? So do you just kind of like do your thing and check back in six months later? I try, you know, I do look at the different data that comes across, you know, whether it's, you know, PMI or housing starts or things like that. I think it's interesting that we're starting to see the numbers look a little bit more positive for, for home buyers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's probably because sometimes when, when people are waiting too long, it kind of compresses that demand up. So then eventually they have to start. I know a lot of um, investors are starting to think about purchasing because they just can't wait any longer. And there's also the idea that you can always refinance in a few years if rates do go down. So I think that you have to look at what your priorities are when it comes to your values and goals and how you want to live your life and then try to find the best way possible to do that. Um, in terms of looking at all these different numbers, when I think about clients, it's a little bit easier for me in the sense that we have a longer term view. We don't have a day to day. We're not traders. You know, I, I don't have institutional clients, I have private wealth clients, individual clients, business owners, entrepreneurs, C-suite executives that are trying to figure out what to do with their money and how to make it you know, build and last. I've had conversations with a lot of clients in their late 50s 
their whole life they've been in the accumulation phase, right? They're growing, they're adding money to their portfolio, and it's pretty, you know, pretty low key. Now they're starting to think about retirement. And I can tell you, people get stressed when they start thinking about, oh, now I have to take this money and put, put, you know, I'm in the distribution phase. Like, how am I going to start using that money for the rest of my life? And it's a little scary, which is why I also think, you know, clients can do a financial plan, which gives you a really great roadmap year to year about how, what kind of money will come in into your portfolio and how to, um, you know, spend it throughout each year so that you have it for the rest of your life. So these are like the like longer term themes and topics I'm thinking about when I think about clients. And I'm also looking for, you know, uh, earlier people were talking about how, you know, there's a strategy, you know, Buffett takes a strategy of trying to find dislocations in the market. I've always thought that that is the best way to think about clients' portfolios, their individual portfolios. Like, when is there a dislocation in the market and can we take advantage of that? So when we see the interest rates change favorably for individual investors and their yields are getting higher that's a great time to say like you know we have a little money on the sidelines let's start putting that to work kathy to what extent do you um, guide your clients into alternative investments whether that's private equity private credit uh hedge funds how does that work yeah absolutely so of course alternative investments you, you know you need to qualify for it so you have to be like a certain level of investor um however they're, they're becoming more and more democratized and, and um, becoming more available to uh, more investors than in the past. So the way I think about it is this, equities, they've had a run. We had like a, a 10 year, you know, double digit return. I think it was like, what was it, 2010 or so to 2020, something like that. Um, we think alternatives are an area where we can see double digit returns for the next 10 years. So we definitely want our clients in there. And so I'm looking at an asset allocation of anywhere on equities from like 50 to 60. Now that fixed income is back in the game, we can peel back from the equities and add more to fixed income because we were kind of avoiding a fixed income for a larger portion of the portfolio in the last so you know few years. So you've got like 50 to 60% equities, maybe you've got like 20 to 30% fixed income and 15 to 20 you know, you can go, depending on the size of the client's net worth, you can go as high as 30% in alternatives, but 15 to 20 is really like a good number. And when we're looking at it, we're looking at trying to level up, you know, sort of what the client is looking for versus their time frame, the liquidity needs, and all those things that need to be considered. Really interesting. Yep. That's a lot, though, 15 to 20. Yeah, that's what I hear. I mean, we were, yeah. I hear that it's, from the retailers. It's very typical now. It's, it's like I would say that's what's typical for the, you know, the high net worth investor. All right, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. As always, Kathy Entwistle, Managing Director, Morgan Stanley, Private Wealth Management, joining us on a Zoom call from lovely Ridgewood in New Jersey. They love me in Ridgewood. That's a great town. They love you everywhere in Jersey, sure. don't they? But they, I mean, let you, they let you into Ridgewood? Yeah, I know exactly. It was a very, <laughs> I slipped in there. The country club, you know, I made it once. Uh, Ridgewood Country Club lost many golf balls there. It's a great, great old course. Uh, love it there. You know, but we were at a remote for one of our uh, RIA folks, uh, registered investment advisors. Mm. And that's what the advisors were saying. They have a ton of demand from their clients for alternative investments yeah. is much higher than I thought. Yeah, but it's like with Bitcoin, it's like, is it going to be 10% or 1%? And that really makes uh, quite a big difference. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Amazon, uh, that's another big name. Now, that is now in the Dow Jones Industrials. Uh, good for them. It's a big day for them. Uh, but the question is kind of where do we go from here? What are the drivers here for our good friends at Amazon? Uh, because they are the biggest play on retail, but they're also one of the big plays on the cloud and all that kind of stuff. So Poonam Goyal, it's her job to figure all that stuff out. She's a senior analyst covering all the retail stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Poonam, what's the, if you go talk to your clients out there, your institutional investor clients, what's kind of the, the play on Amazon? Is it just shut up, I got to own it, or mm -hmm. I own it only for the cloud, or what's kind of the story behind the Amazon play right now? Yeah, I think it's all about profits. For a long time, Amazon was all about market share. And today, the story is really a profit story. It's the profitability that's about to unfold at Amazon that's really getting people excited and interested. We wrote about this a few months ago where, you know, if you look at their um, most lucrative businesses and everyone knows of the cloud, which generates 30% EBIT margins, which we think can go to 40%, that could be a $200 billion business. So you're looking at 60 to $80 billion in profits in the coming years. But then if you add advertising to that, and Paul, you know That's the space right, yeah. well, they have 50% EBIT margins and we can see advertising growing to $100 billion in just a few years. So you're talking about 50 billion in advertising Plus, if you add another 60, 70 of cloud, you're talking a big profit number here. And I think that's what's getting people excited. Aside from that, retail is growing. And part of the reason that advertising is doing so well is because you talked about search a little earlier. You know, people go into Amazon as if it was a search engine, yep. right? You yep. go in and totally you search true. for something. But the difference with Amazon versus a search engine is you go with the purchase intent. People oh, go into Amazon looking for something and to click that buy button. They already know they want it. They just want to find it and get it there in two days or less. That is such a good point. And this is a great example of, of this story of Amazon replacing Walgreens. So I was talking to an anchor who's been struggling with feeling sick and feels like that winter, like she's just sick all the time. And I was telling her about Airborne, which you take if you feel a coming on of a cold. She's like, oh, where do I buy it? Amazon. And I'm like, no, <laughs> go to your local drugstore. It's two blocks away. But that idea, right, that like walking yep. those two blocks isn't going to happen and I have to go to Amazon <laughs> to buy the thing because it'll come in two days and I'm not even worried about it. Um, where is the downside though, Poonam? I mean, you laid out a pretty convincing case. So how do I, I don't know, what do I worry about? 
So I think, you know, the downside, if we enter a consumer recession, clearly Amazon will be impacted, right? So will the rest of retail. But I think that's near term. And as we've seen in past cycles, what goes down comes up eventually. Amazon is one of those places where we think if you view it for the longer term, there's just a lot of opportunity across all its businesses. We can't control the macro, but with their logistics platform in place, and, and even this example that you gave, you know, you need cold medicine or you need anything and you have to go to CVS or somewhere else because you need it now. You can't wait six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours for it. But I'll tell you that Amazon's delivery has gotten much faster. I mean, I'm seeing stuff at my door that I ordered today in less than 24 hours, sometimes eight to 12 hours. And that's pretty incredible. And that's really a part due to their realignment of their distribution centers, which they're able to infuse an even faster delivery. See, now I have a general idea where Poonam and her family live. It's literally amongst, or very close to like, I think all these distribution centers in central Jersey. It's unbelievable. Mm, I think we've got to be like the central, we have to be like the distribution hub of the, the East Coast, it seems like. Um, You're like a Jersey promo. You're oh, like yeah, a I am. Jersey I am. Promo, <laughs> just so what, we're clear. I, when I see the gov, I tell them, you know. Um, <laughs> so, um, Poonam, let's, let's back away from Amazon. Talk to us about just retail in, in general here. How's the consumer doing out there? How do you, what are you hearing from your companies? I think the consumer is very focused on value today. If you're seeing the retailers that are actually being able to drive the share gains, you'll see that they offer some sort of value in their proposition, whether it was from Walmart that you heard from earlier, you know, that's doing well. But then we hear from the other retailers, more discretionary ones, and they're struggling. Even the athleisure companies, we heard, you know, from Puma and Adidas, we heard from some of the other companies where they may have done well in 4Q because holiday was really strong last year. But when they look out for their guidance, it's been conservative for the most part from most of the retailers that I've heard from. And I think that just goes to show you that you have to have what the consumer wants and you have to have it at the price that the consumer wants it at for you to actually succeed in today's environment. Uh, Macy's comes out tomorrow. We have to wait for next week for like Kohl's and Target and all those guys. But Macy's comes out tomorrow. I mean, that's a that's a fine line to walk for Macy's. What are you expecting? Yeah, I think I think holiday was really, really strong last year. So I think when these companies report four Q results, you will see some reflection of that even across the department stores. But the question is really once again on the longer term, right? Where do they stand in the longer term? Is this a viable business model? How many stores should they have? How did we lose you? Kind of grappling with right now. And and we are in an environment where the consumer is spending on needs over wants. And if it is on wants, they're traveling. That's where they're going. Yep. So we're, you know, we talk about inflation, Poonam. Um, prices, by and large, in the supermarket don't come down after they shot up however many per percent here. That's just the inflation rate of growth is slowing. How about for, like, Adidas? Did they ever cut the price of a shoe? Because inflation's <laughs> declining. Does that no. ever happen? No, they add discounts, right? So if you yep. want to bring prices down, retailers use discounts as a medium to do that. But oh, Paul. once yep. prices go up, they, they don't come down. See, that's that's a problem with inflation. Yeah. That's why inflation is insidious. Yeah. But so to kind of Paul's question, but really to my question, um, are we going to see a lot of discounting from retailers? So I don't know if you guys know this. Have we talked about Alex as a counter indicator? No. 
I only shop on sale. Okay. So where I'm shopping, you should be shorting the stock. So, <laughs> so this is the joke that winds up happening because I'm shopping there because their inventory is bloated and because the sales are so good. So am I going to be going to Bloomies in the next couple weeks or are they finally have their pricing power and inventory in check? I think inventory is getting more in check as we move into the spring. Darn so I was in stores actually on Friday and the discounts were pretty reasonable. They weren't too aggressive. There were some clearance racks across the mall, but I can tell you the stores were quiet. There was no one in there on a Friday afternoon. It was wow. very, very quiet. So it's, it's just interesting because there's new inventory that's flown in for the spring and as stores put this new inventory out, they're going to be a little careful with their discounting. And and we could see more discounts come in in April on the spring inventory. But for now, they're being steady and careful with them. Well, I hey. bought a new sport coat over the weekend, and, hey. and maybe I'll break it out for you guys on Friday. Something to look forward to. <laughs> okay. Oh, we can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. The, exactly. This is the long sell. This is this is sort of a, a I actually walked into a local uh, retailer shopping local. Um, that's how you go. Because guess what? The Brooks Brothers in the Shrewsbury Mall. Done. Closed. Oh, no kidding. Yes. That's actually, I, I've been there any number of times. I know. That's crushing blow. Uh, crushing blow. Uh, so, Poonam, what's the... Uh, <laughs> Men's clothes Is there a fashion <laughs> thing out there that, that's moving the market, moving the needle, that's maybe getting one of your names, kind of outperforming the others? I think across fashion, it's the same trend that we've been seeing. You know, denim is still in, in terms of... Um, at leisure, people are dressing down still, but their wardrobes are more balanced. I think we're seeing a little bit more of the work attire come back into play mm. since people are returning to work in a more normal fashion. So we will start to see the career part of the business has probably outperformed this year. That's really interesting. Who's set to benefit from something like that? Um, I'd say the department stores, really any Amazon, any of the retailers that have a more formal offering and not to say suits right you don't need to be wearing suits to work anymore but you do need to come out of your comfort wear whether it's joggers or leggings and really put on some dresses or some slacks to get it to the workplace well, john take off those at leisure pants okay yes. you're supposed no, this to just wear reminds something me different. of the fashion police paul over oh, here well. yelling at some guy who was like wearing gym shorts in the office well the one it, you, the sandals is Oh, yeah. Almost a oh, game drop changer. That could have been, I'm taking your, your lanyard and your badge. And Keep enough. your toes in your shoes. Yes, exactly. Toes so, in your shoes. I mean, I'll go. I'll sit there on the sixth floor on some of these days and check people out and give them some advice. Poonam Goyle, thanks so much for joining us. Poonam Goyle, Senior Retail Analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she was joining us via Zoom from the Princeton, New Jersey headquarters of Bloomberg Intelligence, even though we fought for years to get to New York. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We just had a headline crossing. This is according uh, to Semaphore that the FTC is going to sue to block the Kroger-Albertsons uh, merger today. And this comes across as a ton of M&A has taken place in many different industries and a lot of them going up against the DOJ. Uh, Capital One Discover last week, there's been a ton of oil mergers as well. So there's literally no one else to talk to but Jennifer Ree. She's senior litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. In my mind, the best person on this topic, pretty much out there on the street. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, hey, Jen, there's a lot to kind of get through right now. But in terms of, say, Capital One and Discover, what's your prediction here? 
Well, this one is such a tough one. You know, I think that the Department of Justice is kind of in a conundrum with this one, right? Because they're under a directive to get tougher on deals and in particular get tougher on bank deals. I mean, this is come from back in 2021 when President Biden issued an executive order saying, look, you know, we can't just rubber stamp these bank deals. We've got these huge banks. We've had problems with banking and we need to get more aggressive. And the Department of Justice is on board with that. You know, we've heard their statement saying that they're on board with that. Um, but you also have a market that simply hasn't been competitive for many, many, many years, and that's in credit card processing, right? We really have just two biggies, Visa and MasterCard. And this deal provides an opportunity to really bolster competition in an area that's been problematic ever since I can remember. When I started antitrust, the very first lawsuit I worked on was the Department of Justice versus Visa and MasterCard, alleging that they were engaging in conduct that was blocking out Discover and American Express. And ever since then, right, we've had allegations of or private litigation, public litigation against those two companies for antitrust violations, and we've had regulation. So this is an this this deal does have these strong pro-competitive benefits but you've also seen massive political reaction against it so you really have two very strong opposing sides um and i think it's just going to come down to the investigation and how the department of justice views the credit card issuing market and, and the overlaps in the credit card issuing market between these two companies and how it weighs out any potential for harm it might find against this this pro-competitive aspect so but it, it seems like a reasonable argument that putting Capital One and Discover together does, in fact, create a viable competitor to Visa MasterCard. Otherwise, there will never be a viable uh, competitor. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's why this is an unusual deal, because, you know, all companies with deals come in and say, oh, there are all sorts of pro-competitive benefits that are going to benefit consumers and innovation, et cetera. And usually you know, sometimes they're kind of lawyer created. Sometimes they're really, you know, it's, it's unclear whether they're going to come to fruition. And most of the time, the Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission are going to be very skeptical about those claims. They say they don't really ever bear fruit. But in this case, it's much, it's a much stronger claim. And mm -hmm. it is kind of obvious to see how there really truly could be a, a very significant pro-competitive benefit here. And so it could be one of these unique deals where that aspect is given more weight than usual by the Department of Justice and, and possibly be considered important enough to allow the deal to go through, even if there might be some other issues. Jen, couldn't I have made the same argument with, say, Spirit and JetBlue? And that definitely didn't work out. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because I see so many parallels between that case and this case, even though completely different industries, because there was a very strong argument that those two combined could have uh, bolstered competition against the legacy airlines, Delta, United, et cetera. But the problem there was that there was a small set of consumers that really depended on the unbundled low fares that were offered by Spirit. And we're going to lose out where JetBlue took over those routes and retrofitted the planes and created more space, but raised fares. In a weird way, you kind of have the same dynamic here. You can create a lot more competition as against the incumbents, the big legacies, Visa and MasterCard, but you might have some sort of a negative effect on underserved uh, consumers because Capital One and Discover, when they issue credit, they tend to focus more on underserved populations than do some of the other big issuers of credit. So people who are new to credit, people who carry a revolving balance, um, subprime borrowers, and it may be that there's a view that this impacts that a smaller group of subprime borrowers. And in JetBlue and, and uh, 
Um, and Spirit, at the end of the day, that won out. The DOJ won because of that harmful impact on a small set of particular mm -hmm. consumers. You have the same thing here. But what you might have here is a stronger argument on the pro-competitive side than you had in that case. Well, how about, as, as uh, Alex was just reporting here, the FTC to sue to block Kroger-Albertson's merger today, that's according to Semaphore. Ken, isn't that an easy fix? We just sell some stores where they overlap? You know, that part of it is the easy fix, but remedies have two pieces. It's what are you going to sell and who are you going to sell it to? And both of those pieces have to pass muster. So I think on the what are you going to sell, that's probably an easy fix because ultimately the companies, if they can squabble over 20 stores or so, but if they can sell them, if they have to sell them. The issue here, I think, is going to be all about the buyer. This is CNS Wholesale that is the proposed divestiture buyer of all the stores the companies plan to divest in order to get clearance. And it's just not really clear whether they're going to be able to take up to 650 stores and actually compete with those stores viably and keep those stores open and maintain competition in each of these regions where there's too much concentration by virtue of this deal. Um, so I think in court, what this is really going to come down to is vetting that buyer um, and the companies are going to have to produce a lot of evidence that that's a good buyer that's motivated, motivated to compete and motivated to keep these stores open. Um, and it's mm -hmm. they're going to have to convince the judge. And if they can convince the judge of that on the buyer side, I think the deal will get cleared. Um, if they can't, then I think the FTC will win there. Is there an argument to be made for some of these potential deals that are getting a hard time from the DOJ or FTC to kind of buy time till November 6th of this year? Absolutely. <laughs> like, run out the no, clock? Like, is this part of a strategy? I mean, absolutely. And look at Capital One and Discover. They very well are probably going to bleed into the next administration, whether it's Democrat or Republican. There is no doubt, Alex. I mean, historically, Republican administrations have the reputation in the merger world of being more business friendly and also being far less skeptical of claims of efficiencies, giving them a lot more weight. And that's going to be important, as I mentioned in this deal. Right now, it's a little bit of a wild card. It used to be 10 years ago that whoever came in to run the FTC, um, if, a, if we had a Republican president, whoever got appointed as chair, the Republican majority there, and whoever came in on the DOJ side, were likely to be more business friendly, were likely to look at efficiencies more, in a more friendly manner. Right now, though, that we have kind of two different kinds of Republicans. You have sort of a Josh Hawley type, and you guys may have seen in the news that he's already come out and complained about this deal, said the Department of Justice should block it. And then you kind of have the Joe Simons type, who was the chair of the FTC in the previous Trump administration. A little bit more traditional in the way we think of Republicans in the antitrust world. And so I think to some extent, it might depend on who you get at the DOJ, um, but I would still say that it ticks higher. The chances of getting cleared probably tick higher if we have a change in administrations next year. So, Jen, do you think this current administration, the fact that it is tougher on consolidation on deals, has that had an impact on M&A activity? Or a lot of companies are saying that it's not worth it? You know, Paul, it's been a really strange cycle in my mind. I think in the beginning, when deals started getting a lot of pushback um, and a lot of more lawsuits than were expected, it sort of slowed things down, right? I feel like there was a period last year where in the M&A slowed down. And now I feel like it's really picking back up again. And so I think there might be two reasons that it's picking back up again a lot, at least from the antitrust side. One, as Alex mentioned, maybe at this point, if you file, you're gonna bleed into the next administration and there might be some expectation it's gonna change. It'll be easier to get it closed. But Paul, the other thing is, 
that the agencies haven't been that successful in court. So I think there is sort of a feeling, hey, if you're willing to put in the time and the money and you're willing to litigate, you have a really solid chance of winning in court, even if you face this really hostile, aggressive FTC or DOJ. And I think that could also be contributing to more of these deals getting signed now as well. Um, Jen, we have like maybe a minute left, but um, what about energy? All the energy deals, any one of them not going to happen? Yeah, you know what? I think my feeling, and I know it's surprising, my feeling on those is that they're all going to get done. Uh, I think that there are just reasons where if you look at those markets and you look at the Permian Basin and you look at the number of producers that are in the Permian Basin, which I think is going to be the area that's going to be of most concern, Mm -hmm. I think ultimately those deals get done. And mostly, Alex, I'm saying that because when I looked at uh, the history of FTC action against these kinds of deals, I didn't see anything that far upstream. All of the divestitures, consent orders, attempts to block deals were all downstream and not upstream. And so I that's the reason I think these deals get done. This is our water cooler talk, by the way. Uh, yeah, Like when sure. I see Jen upstairs, oh, we're getting fun. coffee. We're like, hey, man, let's talk about those oil deals. Just, just so we're clear. <laughs> Are they going to get done? Jen Ree, thanks so much for joining us. Jennifer Ree, she is a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us via Zoom. And she is the go-to uh, person on antitrust. And I'll tell you, institutional investors, the, her phone rings off the hook when there's a big deal uh, being litigated because she has the goods here. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Love talking ETFs, because that's where all the money's going. It's just an amazing, amazing development in financial services over the last uh, 10 years or so to see how the funds have just really uh, just gone into the ETFs, and both passive and active. So it's why we like to check in with our next guest, Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, talk to us about kind of where you're seeing the flows these days. Is everybody trying to chase the AI trade? Is it folks looking at tech? Where are you seeing kind of the flows these days? Yeah, good morning. Thanks, guys, for having me. I think, you know, it's still the same, you know, as it was last year. I think that there's a real diverse uh, spreading around, if you will, of the assets. Obviously, there's people, ch- you know, chasing tech. I don't think you necessarily need to chase tech 
you could buy a broad market ETF like the S&P 500 and still get pretty good tech exposure, but not have all your eggs in that basket. Our flows continue to be leaning towards value. Small cap has been a real big surprise for us here lately. We do have the tech side of things. We've got a data and infrastructure product. So I think we're sort of where we were last year, um, which is a little bit uh, puzzling to me because last year, at least we were coming off of really an obliteration in the tech name, but we're still stuck in the same place. We're, we're looking at interest rates and what the Fed's going to do. We're trying to figure out whether they've actually done their job and destroyed the U.S. economy. I'm sorry, not destroyed the U.S. economy, but uh, cooled things down inflation-wise. And then, you know, earnings are always going to be the issue going forward. Um, you know, I'm not as impressed with people beating their earnings as I am in what their forecasting is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And when you have these reports like you got out of Palo Alto last week where they sort of tamper things down, I think we're at a level right now where the market's priced overall a little bit on the high end. And so, you know, we have to be very, very careful about bad news. I mean, you made the joke about destroying the economy, but man, that data continues to hold up really, really well. Is there a reactive uh, sense to ETF flows? Like, big reversals that are happening. And I guess I'm just trying to understand where the biggest misprice is if inflation kind of eventually keeps coming down and the data still stays okay. You know, that could be what happens, Alex. You could actually, you know, they, they might not actually destroy the U.S. economy. They might do it perfectly, right? They may have gotten inflation under control without, you know, having unemployment spike and without having a major impact on, you know, everybody's earnings. I think the interesting thing that's happening right now is that, and I think you need to keep an eye on that, is look at layoffs. I mean, we're starting to see somewhat of an acceleration. So I think companies are starting to think to themselves going forward, how do I increase my earnings? Well, one way to do that would be on the cost side of the ledger. And so as we came out of COVID, you know, that was the big spur that got the big tech names going is they were over, you know, weight, if you will, employees, and they started to cut back and that sort of what juiced their returns. And I think you're starting to see that go sort of a little bit more broadly across the board. Hey, Sean, you say um, maybe one of the ways to play AI is through the picks and shovels strategy. Talk to us about how you'd get exposure that way. Well, we have two strategies there. We own the data centers and the cell phone towers. And so you can't have AI streaming, our, uh, Internet of Things, e-commerce, and online gaming. You can't have that without the buildings that essentially allow for all of the transmission of the data. So that's one way to play it would be to buy data centers and cell phone towers. We have an ETF that does that, the ticker SRV, our server. And then the other way to do it is to play, if you will, the software names and the, and the, and the chip makers. Um, and those names are, you know, basically the NVIDIA is in that mix, but it's not all about NVIDIA. There are a lot of companies in that space. And so we have an ETF that uh, TRFK traffic that basically takes everything out of the data centers and says, that's what we own. Um, when you talk about alternatives, we were talking to Kathy Entwistle uh, in the last hour about alternatives and stuff. Um, I'll throw Bitcoin in there. Let's throw some REITs in there, too. Uh, what other kind of alternative ETF flows are you seeing? Well, we have a, an income story that we like that's starting to pick up some steam. Essentially, its target is to get four times the dividend of the S&P 500. And four times? Do, okay. Four times, yes. The ticker's QDPO, get it quadruple. Uh, and <laughs> the way we nice. do that, <laughs> the way we do that is about 86% of the money is basically in the S&P 500 and 14% of it's in T-bills. And those T-bills are used to enter into futures contracts on the dividends. And so we're able to pull forward three times or a little bit more than 3.14 times this year's dividend by using those futures. And so it's really done exactly what we've expected it to do. And with all the emphasis, for example, on covered calls, you know, with the success of some of the big players in that space, 
We think the limitation on covered calls is that you're selling away your upside. And with a strategy like this, you don't sell your upside away. So we're starting to see some interesting flows in that area as well. Sean, how do you compete in this market that's so dominated by just literally a couple of three or four kind of ETF pr pr providers here? How do you kind of compete and set yourself apart? Uh, we like to say innovative, disruptive, and unique. That's what we build. So our neighborhood home in Malvern, Pennsylvania is yep. Vanguard's. We know who they are. We know what they do. And we know that we're not ready to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, if you will, and fight it out on costs. We'll let State Street do that. So we build strategies. We build a, an end user in mind or an outcome in mind. Maybe that's excess return or maybe that's risk management. Or maybe it's something like the count series that just takes a completely look, different look at the way you define value in this world instead of using traditional price to book we use free cash flow yield because the stock market is primarily intangible intangible assets today and so that's what we do and and so we've been able to accumulate i think a reasonable amount of assets around 40 billion right now i think there's a lot of room for us to grow and um you know if you're innovative and you're disruptive and you're unique unique and you have a sales force like we do that focuses on the financial advisors you can continue to build a nice business. I don't have to have a $5 trillion business. Yeah. I just need to keep growing it like we have been and, and we'll continue to do that with hope. I really want to have the job where you get to come up with the names for these things, like the tickers for yes. it. I want to do that. That <laughs> yeah. sounds like a good time. Before we let you it's go, um, it's not just US that have been doing really well, right? Japanese equities, Nikkei, record high. The CAC, the DAX, record highs. What opportunities are you seeing internationally? Well, we missed Japan. We probably should have had a product there because uh, whenever Warren Buffett starts to move in an area, it's probably good to pay attention. And so he's increasing his exposure there. So he's probably right. We've seen a, a pretty big increase in our global and international. Uh, my favorite story, and it may take patience, I'll just warn all the viewers and listeners, is emerging markets. I mean, you know, we have an emerging market product that has like a 9% current dividend. Um, and it's 100 profitable emerging market names. And I think that cycle has gone on too long. It could continue for a while, but sooner or later, the emerging market cycle will change. And if you think about historically how they do relative to US, over time, they do better. It's just been a currency problem here lately. And so for long-term investors, maybe you tuck a little bit of money in emerging markets. All right, Sean, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer uh, ETFs, joins us. Really appreciate that on the ETF inflows, outflows, and where all the action is. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.